My name is Colby Wheeler. I have the fairly new privilege of being your family pastor here at Troy Church. I have so far really enjoyed getting to meet a lot of you and, and hope to meet the rest of you and get to know you guys better um, as, as time goes on. If you would, if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 17. Book of John, chapter 17. In trying to really embrace this new role as family pastor, one thing that me and my wife Ashley have tried to do better and tried to do more often is to pray together. Not just for each other, but to pray together out loud. And let me tell you, we have not figured it out yet. It is awkward. And it may not be this way for you, but among some of the other couples that we've talked to who are married and have been married, they feel the same way. Prayer can be awkward sometimes, and even more so when you're trying to pray with your spouse or, or someone else that you know really well. And lately it's made me wonder why. why. Why is that the case? I mean, we are married. We've made a covenant relationship, a covenant with one another to love each other no matter what for as long as we both should live. So of all people to pray with, that we should be most comfortable praying with each other. But sometimes that's not the case. And I'm reminded of what happened at the fall in Adam and Eve. In Adam and Eve, there was this perfect relationship. They had a perfect relationship with God, and they had a perfect relationship with each other. And Genesis even tells us they were naked and were not ashamed. And that, that tells us something about their relationship with God and about their relationship with each other. They had an innocent relationship before God, but then in front of each other, even being naked, there was no shame, there was no awkwardness, there was no, no, no weird feelings at all. But as soon as sin enters the relationship, they hide themselves from God and they cover themselves up. And so we see something happen to their relationship with God. It was severed, and then even their relationship to each other was severely injured by the fall, by sin entering that relationship. Then came shame, then came judgment of each other, and it distanced them from each other. And as we read this passage in a moment, we hear a prayer from Jesus in which he is praying to God and he's praying amongst his disciples and for his disciples. And in him there is no awkwardness, there is no shame, there is no guilt. And this isn't going to be an example of, of prayer in Jesus. We see that earlier in the Gospels. But I do want us to see this, see prayer in general as an example of something that has been affected by the fall, has been affected by sin, but they can be redeemed in Jesus. Something that we can, again, do better. Not, not perfectly, but something that we can do in Christ. And so as we read, I want you to just, just hear the, the naturalness of prayer in Jesus and, and hear how there's no awkwardness in it and how he prays for these disciples, amongst other things. So let's read John chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. When Jesus had spoken these words... He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. 
and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you have sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and ask for your help as we read your word. We ask that your spirit would fill us to God as we try to understand what it means and just ask that you would use it to shape our lives, God, that you would draw us closer to you, uh, and that we would see here in Jesus' prayer his heart uh, for us, dear God, and that you would uh, draw us near to yourself. Always another prayer in your gracious and holy name. Amen. So many of Jesus' prayers are recorded uh, throughout the gospel, but none are recorded with as much detail and as much content as this prayer right here, this prayer that leads up to his, uh, the events lead up to the cross. John 14 through 17, even the last few passages that we've been in, have been considered uh, the farewell discourse. And in these passages, Jesus says things like, I go to prepare a place for you. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you a helper. He says, you'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And here in these passages, in these last few moments that he prays, when these last few moments that he has before the cross, before he faces this betrayal, what does he do? We see that he, he prays. Zach and I were talking the other day about prayer and how in the midst of the busyness of life and in ministry, uh, sometimes we can neglect prayer even. We, we, we see so much real work that needs to be done, so many phone calls that need to be made, uh, so many events that need to be planned, sermons that need to be written, lessons that need to be taught. And in the midst of all that, sometimes it's easier to do those things than it is to pray. And you may feel the same way. You may feel that in the busyness of your own life that, and in the, the fact that there are real things you feel like you have to do, that, that prayer is just one of those things that it's hard to get to. And the sad thing is, is what that means is that sometimes we feel like praying is a waste of time. Sometimes we feel like praying is a waste of time. But here in the face of death and in the face of agony with the cross on his mind and with very little time left on earth, Jesus takes time to pray. Jesus goes to the Father in prayer. Jesus, who is God, who is connected to the Father perfectly, goes to him in prayer. He could have spent this time trying to teach more, trying to prepare the disciples even more for what was about to happen, but he doesn't. He already said last chapter, he said, I have more to teach you, but you cannot bear those things now. And so instead of trying to just pound more knowledge into their heads, he, he stops and he prays. 
prays that they would be prepared, and he prays uh, for his own glory. And so in this prayer, we see Jesus' heart for the Father, and we see his heart for these disciples. And as we walk through this prayer, I want you to see two primary things that Jesus prays for in, in what we'll call his parting prayer, his goodbye prayer. The first thing that I want us to see today is that Jesus, in his parting prayer, prays first for glory. He prays for glory. In verses 1 through 5, he petitions the Father to glorify him. He says in verse 1, Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then verse 5, he says, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Neither of these petitions for glory, though, are self-serving. They are focused on the Father. He wants to glorify the Father, and he longs to be with the Father in heaven with the glory that he had before. So Jesus' prayer is, is not self-serving, but is ultimately seeking the glory of the Father. See, if you or I were to pray this way, if we were to try to pray for our own glory, that would be sinful. Because we cannot glorify ourselves and glorify God at the same time. We cannot make much of ourselves and make much of God at the same time. Think about the way the world sees us. Think about the way unbelievers see Christians. Say if you're successful, say if you have a nice house, you drive a nice car, you have a good job, you have a good family. Say that's how the world sees you. And they can either perceive that as coming from God. They can either say, or you can either say, this is what God has blessed me with. These are the things that God has done for me. I'm not deserving of these things. Or the world's going to see that and they're going to hear us say, I did this. I got this all for myself. This is because I worked hard. And so we, even in, our, even in the way the world sees us, we cannot glorify God and glorify ourselves at the same time. But Jesus, he can. Because for Jesus to glorify himself is to glorify God. The glory of Jesus is the glory of the Father. So for Jesus to glorify himself is to glorify the Father. So think also for a moment about the means for Jesus' glory the way in which Jesus would receive glory. Think about his path to glorification. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour throughout the book of John can mean a couple different things. One, it means the glorification of Jesus. That that is in one way the hour. But in another way, and oftentimes the hour refers to a time of suffering. Whenever... Uh, People come to arrest Jesus earlier in the book of John. He says, no, it's not my hour yet. My hour has not yet come. And so this hour, the hour that is at hand, refers to, one, the suffering of Jesus, but the suffering that will lead to the glorification of him. Through death, through the resurrection, and through ascension, Jesus will be exalted. But it's through the means of suffering that Jesus gets to this glorification. So with this in mind, we hear Jesus speaking to the Father in this prayer. He goes before God the Father, who has sent him to the world, and he says this. He says, I have done the work that you have given me to do. I have accomplished it, and I'm fixing to finish it completely at the cross. I do this in obedience to you, and once I'm finished, I ask that you bring me back into your presence with the glory that I had with you once again. And so he asked the Father to bring him glory, but it's not only for the Son or the Father's sake that he asked this. It's also for our sake. Hear what he says in verse 2 through 3. He says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
So the glorification of Jesus and the Father is important because it draws people to Himself. It draws people to God. Jesus says plainly that eternal life is to know that God is the only true God and to know the Son who the Father has sent. Jesus is the only one whom God has given this authority over flesh. He's the only one who has beaten death in this way. And so it is good that He be glorified. For one, it's, it's good because He deserves it. He's deserving of glory. He lived a perfect life. He obediently went to the cross and rose from the dead. He should be exalted. He's the only human who ever should be exalted in that way. But even more than that, it's, it's good for me and it's good for you that Jesus be glorified. Because He is the only way to have a relationship with the Father. He's the only way to have salvation. And this is why throughout the Old Testament we see that God is jealous for His own glory. It's not because He has some need to be met. God doesn't need us to glorify Him. But it's because God knows that He is the only way for us to have salvation. And so He is a loving and gracious Father who wants us to glorify Him because it's good for us that we do. Because He is the only way to have salvation and there's no one else that we can turn and there's no one else deserving of glory, then it is good that we glorify God. And so then it's good and right that Jesus would ask for His own glory. And it's so important that we live our lives in a way that's glorifying to God. That we live our lives in a way that's glorifying God. That we do, that what we do isn't just for us, but it's for God's glory. Because there are good things that we can do that aren't for God's glory. There are good things that we can do in the church that aren't for God's glory, that are for our glory. There are things that we can, ways that we can serve that point people to, to us and not to God. J.D. Greer is a pastor, has two kind of questions that we can use to evaluate ourselves on this, on the idea of whether or not we're seeking our glory or God's glory. First question is this, when God gets glory for himself by exalting someone, and someone besides you, how do you feel? When God gets glory for himself by exalting someone besides you, how do you feel? And the second question is this, what do you do when God sends you suffering? What do you do when God sends you suffering? Do you turn away from God and in doing so say or imply that if, if God's not helping you, then he's not deserving of glory? Or do you say, God, if this brings you glory, if this is a means in which you will glorify yourself, then give me the strength to get through this, then give me the ability to praise you during this. And you say, God, glorify yourself by all means. Some of the most glorifying things that we can do happen when we're going through suffering. When we show that we are content in Him no matter what is going on in our surroundings. When we love God and trust Him despite great loss, God is incredibly glorified. So Jesus prays for Himself and He prays for glory. And the second thing that we see here in this parting prayer, in this goodbye prayer, is that Jesus prays for His disciples. Jesus prays for His disciples. Before even praying, before getting to what he prays for, he, he gives us the grounds for his prayer. He lays out the, the, the reason, the basis for this prayer. Look at what he says in verse 6 through 10. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. 
All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So the basis here for Jesus' prayer for them isn't any of their works. It's not the things that they have done, but it's the fact that God had given them to the Son. He says, I'm praying for them, not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So the basis for Jesus' prayer is that God has given them and they are His. They are the Father's. Jesus says, do these things for them because they are your people. I want us to see now the four things that Jesus, or three things that Jesus prays for, for the disciples. First, He prays for their perseverance. In verse 11, He says, I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. So this asking of the Father to keep them really sums up the rest of what He asks for. He says in verse 12, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So he knows that he is leaving, and that since he will not be with them, and have, the, have his direct presence with them, he asked the Father to take over this work of keeping them. In verse 15, he speaks a little more specifically. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Now, if you have an ESV Bible, you might have a footnote there that says, or keep them from evil, as it could be evil or evil one. Regardless, either which way we look at that, Jesus is asking the Father to protect these disciples from evil or from Satan. And so what he's asking for, he's asking for their perseverance. He's saying, God, keep them, guard them from evil. This is the work of, of perseverance in their life. Secondly, he prays for their unity. In verse 11, he says, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. Now in verses 20 through 26 that we'll see next week, uh, Jesus gets more specific and prays for the followers who will come after the disciples, who the disciples will lead to Christ. And he prays for their unity heavily in that passage. But here, even before that, he asks that they would be unified. If the church is going to have a good foundation to begin with, this, this early church that these disciples are going to build, they must have unity. And so the basis for that unity then is, is the Father and the Son. He says that they would be one just as you and I are one. And just like in the Trinity, people of the church don't need to be exactly the same. The Father, Son, and Spirit are not exactly the same persons. But they do have the same mission and the same goal. So likewise in the church, we don't have to be identical, but we do serve a common purpose and we serve a common mission and a common goal. So he prays for their perseverance, he prays for their unity, and he prays for their sanctification. Finally, in verse 17, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And in verse 19, he says, And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also might be sanctified in truth. So to be sanctified then is to be holy, to be set apart. So Jesus here prays in the context of this world that they're living in, in which he says, God, don't, don't take them out of the world yet, but he says, separate them from the world while they're there. Make them distinct from the world. And we believe that sanctification is a lifelong process in which we grow in faith, in which we grow in our relationship with God. And we hear from Jesus right here that the way that we do that is through truth, through hearing God's word in truth. So the means for growth is the truth that we see in God's word. And so Jesus' prayer here shows his heart for believers. He prays that they would be sanctified by the word of God. And in this sanctification, we follow Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, I consecrate, 
which that could mean sanctify, consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified. So Jesus, who was the anointed one, who has been separated, who was sent from the Father, says that he will sanctify himself so that we may follow in that sanctification. In this sanctification, he is both the sacrifice and he is the priest. He gives himself up for us and he goes before us to the Father. And this is what it means for Jesus to consecrate himself for us. And now that we've seen what it means, I want you to notice for what reason we are sanctified. The disciples and us today. Sandwiched between these two statements of sanctification in verse 17 and 19, there is this statement of purpose. Look at verse 18. He says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So in this chapter alone, we see this, this full progression of a believer. Verse 6, they're taken out of the world and they're given to Jesus. Verse 16, they are different from the world, not of the world. And then verse 18, they are sent back into the world for the mission of Jesus. So then the purpose for this sanctification, the purpose for this being set apart, is the mission of God. And that we would let others know what we read in verse 3, where he says that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So perseverance, unity, and sanctification, they all point us to and prepare us for the mission of Jesus. To be kept from evil, to be unified, to be sanctified, are all very important if we're going to properly be on mission for Jesus. For these disciples, their mission was to start the church. Not a church, the church. They started the first legitimate following of Jesus as a church. And for them, their unity, their perseverance, their sanctification, uh, it all was important for the church to, to grow. For other believers to come to faith that we're going to see in the next part of this prayer, they had to do these things. They had to be unified, they had to persevere, and they had to be sanctified. So in a lot of ways, the fate of the church rested on their shoulders. And while we don't have the same authority as the apostles do, we're not given the authority to write Scripture, we're not given the authority to start the church, we do still bear a heavy responsibility. I would say, I would go as far as to say the fate of future believers rest also on our perseverance, on our unity, and our sanctification as well. And the good news is that God supplies those things. Remember, this isn't just a teaching. This isn't just Jesus commanding the disciples to do these things. This is Jesus praying that God would supply these things for the believers. That God would provide these for them. And God is the one who saves. He is the one who opens their hearts. But He does, through, does so through ordinary means like you and I sharing the gospel, like you and I praying for other people. So Jesus prays this last prayer, this parting prayer, with a mission in mind. He sent the apostles back into the world after pulling them out, after preparing them, and He sends them back in. And same way for us. He draws us out of the world. He takes us away from who we used to be. He changes us, and then He sends us back into the world to be on mission for Him, to spread the truth and to spread His glory. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15 says this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in, whom, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Last weekend, uh, a missionary who Troy Church has sent out was in town, and she said this. She said that she and her husband often pray that God would raise up more missionaries, not just in general, but she said this, that, they would raise up, that God would raise up more missionaries out of Troy Church. 
that God raised up more missionaries out of this gathering of believers. And if you're like me, that may make you squirm just a little bit. You may think, man, what if God calls me? Or if you're a parent, you may think, what if God calls one of my kids? And that may be like a scary thought for some. And, but it's a way in which God's glory is multiplied. And it's a way in which the, the mission of Jesus is spread, the glory of Jesus is spread throughout the world. But even if you're not called to vocational mission work, every Christian has been called to persevere, been called to unity, and has been called to sanctification for the mission of the gospel, for the mission of spreading the kingdom of God, to make much of God and bring Him glory. At this point, as we, as we close, it's hard for me not to make a, a shameless plug about, about faithful church membership. As I've thought through these things, perseverance, unity, and sanctification, I feel strongly that God has given the church to help believers in this way. So don't, don't think church as in organization. Think church as in a gathering of believers, of, of born-again believers of Christ. In that body, we encourage one another to persevere. In that body, we, we seek unification. And in that body, we help each other along the path of sanctification. God never intended for believers to do these things alone. And you guys know that. You're here. But I just want you to hear just how important it is for us to be a part of a church and to be a part of a body of believers. And so as you consider this prayer, and as we think about next week, as we hear more about unity in, in the later believers, I want you to consider the ways in which the local gathered body of believers, body of believers, the church here, the way in which they can help you to persevere, to be unified, and to be sanctified, and ways in which you can help other believers do those same things. Troy Church really is a family of believers that does these things together, and I think does these things well. As we close in prayer, if you need to come and pray, this, this stage will be an altar. If you need to talk with someone about faith, about baptism, or just about anything in general, our connections table at the back, they can get you plugged in with someone to talk to. Catch an elder if you need to, um, but let's pray.